you can't go back and make up for a decade of lost compounding returns. But as you get older, some of the things that were new and exciting aren't as new as exciting anymore. And your body, even though your mind is willing, just can't keep up to that pace anymore. And you don't want to find out at that point that now you have to work harder because you didn't save money to set yourself up. You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Alrighty, hello and welcome back to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where we tell the stories and strategies of everyday millionaires and unveil their current portfolio allocations. This is episode number 93. On today's show, we have Looney Doctor. He is a millionaire with over a million in investable assets. That's even after converting from the Canadian dollar to the U.S. dollar. Last week on the show, we had Chris Benson. Chris works in self-storage and got into the nitty-gritty of self-storage investing. Everything from how to get started to the size of units, the price of rentals, and the types of self-storage units, and how you can bundle that investment with U-Haul rentals and boxes. So a really, really interesting interview. Before we get into today's episode with Looney Doctor, I just want to thank our sponsor, Obsidian Capital, for supporting the show. Creating passive income is one of the quickest ways to create and establish wealth. At Obsidian Capital, their core philosophy is to enable qualified investors to create long-term wealth passively through strategic real estate investments. Their team of experienced real estate professionals identifies stabilized and value-add multifamily real estate assets that will provide strong financial returns, a healthy risk profile, task incentives, and additional benefits that come with investing in real estate. They pride themselves on a high level of integrity and have experience in acquiring and managing over $300 million in multifamily assets. Furthermore, their leadership has over 45 years of combined industry experience. View their website today to learn more about their streamlined investment process at www.obsidiancapitalco.com. If you'd like to invest in our multifamily opportunities, feel free to reach out to us at millionairesunveiled at gmail.com and we'll jump on a call with you to discuss the opportunities and strategy. So feel free to reach out. Many of you already have if you're interested in a syndicated real estate opportunity. Also, we'd love to share your millionaire financial story. Our goal is to get a broad list of guests and stories. So if you'd like to be on the show as a millionaire interviewee or one close to millionaire status, please reach out to us. Once again, our email is millionairesunveiled at gmail.com. But without further delay, let's jump right into today's interview with Looney Doc. Looney Doctor, do you want to just give us a little bit about your background and kind of what you're up to now? Sure. I'm a mid-40-year-old physician who works in Canada, and I grew up in a middle-class family, went to medical school, trained, had a very exciting career in medicine, and I've now, as part of that, started to write about finance in the setting of medicine. And for all professionals, essentially, that make higher incomes. Awesome. That's, that's, that's what I'm doing now. And it's a kind of a mishmash of other things. And what is your net worth? Well, I have over a million invested. And that's even when you convert my Canadian loonies to US dollars, because people may know the US, Canadian dollar is not worth nearly as much as US dollars are. Okay. And uh, how is that broken up? Well, we have it in a variety of investment accounts. One of the things that I try to do is to split up 
my money into areas that are different, uh, have different tax treatments. So we have about uh, 22% in our RRSPs, which is our registered retirement saving plan, uh, which is kind of a, a tax deferral vehicle that we've got. Uh, about 5% in our TFSA, which is our tax-free savings account. So that's after tax dollars, but then it's tax-free. And in our corporation is, is probably where the bulk of our money is, which is about 42% of our invested assets. We also have a taxable account, which is attributed to my wife from the income that she's made over the years. So we've been careful to separate out what she makes uh, so that she can invest her money and we can pay for our living expenses from my money. That way, anything that's earned on that investment income is taxed in her hands rather than my hands because she's in a lower tax bracket than I am. And then we have about 5% in our RESPs, which are our equivalent of uh, an educational savings plan for our kids. Awesome. And what has been your range of income in your field? So I'm, I'm fortunate to be in a relatively high-paying specialty. So a full-time uh, specialist in my field make generally between about three fifty and four hundred thousand US a year, and we're we're largely hospital-based. So our overhead is pretty low. It's about ten percent of that. So it's a pretty uh, pretty good income. And over over my working life, I've there have been times where I've worked more than full-time because we've been short. And then uh, now that I'm getting a bit older, I'm definitely not going to work more than full time. <laughs> awesome. Is your house paid off? No, it's not. We've we're we have a pretty big house. That's one of our uh, financial stumbling blocks that we've done over the years. We have a large house, so it's 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 easily manageable for us, and a uh, little more than half. It's more than halfway paid off. It's hard to know what it's really worth because the house isn't worth anything until you sell it. And get and pay, all, the truth. and pay all the realtor fees and everything else. So, you know, it's it's actually kind of hard to know really what's uh, tied up in that. I got an interesting question for you. Now that you're, you know, as a, as a physician, I, you know, everybody always talks about those that are in that profession or have post graduate school to get a later start and everything. And and obviously, you know, you, you end up with a with a high income and potentially lots of debt. Do you feel that that the route that you've taken and kind of where you've arrived at financially, you know, you're are you pleased with it? And what would maybe have you changed with how your allocation's broken up now? No, I'm I'm very happy to be where I am. I mean, I've got a a, a job that's a great great career, lots of opportunities in it, and a lot of flexibility to go off and pursue different interests within it. So, and then I also get paid well to do that. And so. Definitely wouldn't change any of that. I think the biggest thing that physicians face, yes, yeah, so we do have a later start and we do accrue a lot of debt uh, to get there. So that that creates a number number of issues. One of which is uh, a you have that big debt to pay off. B you have to save over a shorter time horizons and uh, to, for things like your retirement because everything you do as a physician in Canada, you're basically an independent contractor. So you have to provide for all of the savings for your future. So you can't go back and make up for a decade of lost compounding returns. So you do make a you do make a higher income when you do finally start to make a higher income. But the way that our tax system is set up, it's quite progressive. So you make a higher gross income, but you get taxed a lot higher if you're making a higher gross income. You'd almost be better off to make sort of a moderate income over spread out over many, many years rather than 
you know, not a lot of income and then a high income for a period of time uh, because your after-tax income will be a bit less. So that it, you don't make, you don't take home as much as you think it is what you're making. That's important for people to understand, especially when they first start out in practice, because you start getting the big, big checks rolling in, but you have to pay tax on all of that. And you may not fully appreciate how much that is until, until uh, tax season starts to hit you. You know, when you do your other jobs and you pay sort of moderate uh, income tax rates, it's, it's, it's there, you know, that everyone complains about it, but it's not nearly the same as when you're making a high income where it becomes probably your, by far your biggest expenditure. So that's, that's one issue that you have to confront. The other issue that I think people face when they start late is that it's not just the time of training that goes into medicine, it's the, the intensity. So you not only have to train for, you know, 10 to 15 years to do it, you also have to be top of your class all the time. So there's a lot of focus on that, which means you put off other areas of your life. So you have pent up financial demand and you have pent up to demand to go and experience some of the things that you put off because you've been so focused on your training. So you finally start to make this this larger income and there's all that pent up to demand, which can be a bit of a recipe for disaster because you may not realize it, even though you're making a large income after tax is less and you have probably a negative net worth and a decade of investing to make up for. So you kind of start behind. And if you don't pay attention to it, it's hard to catch up later. You know, one of the other things that I think people find out in medicine is at the beginning, you know, it's, it's going to be long hours and it's going to be intense work, but it's really exciting and you enjoy it. But as you get older, some of the things that were new and exciting aren't as new as exciting anymore. And your body, even though your mind is willing, just can't keep up to that pace anymore. And you don't want to find out at that point that now you have to work harder because you didn't save money to set yourself up. You're better off getting yourself set up well at the beginning. And then as your body and your you know, your natural state can't do the same thing anymore, you don't have to because you can you can start to scale back and refocus on the things that you think are important. Awesome. So what I'm hearing is there's there's obviously some benefits to being a doctor and then other things that you just need to be aware of and be a little bit more proactive and, and so they don't get away from you. Yeah, I think as a doctor you can you can be very successful financially and have and balance that with your life and have just about anything that you want if you if it's really something you put your mind to, but you can't have it all at the same time. You have to take things in sequence and and try to do things in a logical order so that you can take advantage of your human capital while you've got it. Sure. Did you always know you wanted to be a doctor? Um, it was it was always on my list, and I, I wanted to be a fighter pilot after, you know, I, I grew up in the Top Gun days, and I wanted to be a fighter pilot, but then I got glasses, and that kind of was crushed. So <laughs> here I am. Awesome. <laughs> so let's go back to your investment portfolio a little bit. Any holdings in real estate besides your primary residence? Not directly, really. I, I do hold some uh, REITs uh-huh. as part of, part of my asset allocation mix, but I don't hold real estate other out, outside of my house. I was an accidental landlord for a short period of time, uh, but I wouldn't do that again. For me, if when I when I think about it, time is is the most important currency that I've got, and for me to make money, the best place for me to make money is actually at my job, and yeah. the best place for me to spend my time is at home. So I'm not going to take on other investments that are actually going to take a lot of my time outside of my home and work life. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit. I want to come back and, and kind of see how you're invested in, in in any of the stock markets. But time being, you know, a critical piece. And, and I think as your net worth becomes higher and as you, you work more hours, you have more kids and your family grows, right, it becomes even more valuable. 
So how have you kind of decided what to outsource and what to keep doing yourself and, and what to focus on and kind of what to let go of? Well, I think, I think one of the first things, well, so from a financial standpoint, it's important to actually understand what your time is worth in terms of dollars. And, and by that, I don't mean, yeah, you can say, oh, I make X number of dollars per hour, but really what it be, what really matters is how much do you make per hour after tax? And that's kind of your base value of your time. So you can think of tasks in terms of, of how much of that, how long would it, how, how long would you have to work and how much work would you have to do to make that kind of after tax money? And then you can put in a, a fudge factor like your pain in the butt factor about how much you like or hate doing a job. So that'll factor into to what you do and don't do. So I, I actually do a lot of my own work around the house for things that are uh, jobs that I enjoy. So I have I have a tractor. So I pushing pushing trees over and running over brush and stuff like that. I I won't outsource that. I'll do that myself. Basic jobs like fixing a ceiling fan or or things like that I'll do myself. Jobs that I think I have a high potential for me to uh, cause damage or kill somebody, like electrical work, I'll outsource that for sure. Awesome. So jumping back to your investments, where are you invested in the markets? What's kind of your allocation there? Yeah, so my, my overall allocation is, uh, actually just checked all this before uh, coming onto the podcast. So but bonds are 10%, uh, REITs are 10%. I have some Canadian rate reset preferred shares, which are a little bit different than the U.S. ones, uh, which is 10%. That's a bit of a, a Canadian thing. Uh, I also have uh, Canadian equities, 15%, uh, U.S. equity, 30%, non-North American developed markets, 10%, and emerging markets, 15%. So that's my goal allocation. I'll fluctuate a little bit around that because I don't believe in too tightly rebalancing it and most of the time it's just a matter of adding stuff to whatever adding money to whatever is lowest although i'm starting to get to the point now where occasionally something will get offside on the high end so i do have to occasionally rebalance a bit and is most of that held in in just index funds that track those markets or any actively managed mutual funds no it's all in index funds so my my basic investing philosophy is that you can't control or predict markets and most active managers can't either you can try to pick pick a good one who does beat them, but your odds are against you, you know, less than 5% outperform the markets and they change on a year to year basis. So I, I just can't pick the right one. So if I can match the markets, that's, that's what I'm trying to do with passive index investing. I do think what you can control is you can control fees, which gets to passive investing and also control taxes. So for me in Canada, taxes are actually a pretty big part of what affects, what affects our investment returns. So I'm, when I've organized my portfolio, I've tried to organize it in a way that everything's pretty tax efficient. Awesome. And have you ever used a financial advisor to help at all, or have you kind of just come up with that allocation on your own? So this allocation, I've come up with my own. Uh, I've used a number of advisors over the years. I started out with a you know, mutual fund-based model advisor. Uh, then I also had an assets under management type of advisor. And then I had an advisor who charge a lower fee, but would just provide sort of investment advice, and then I'd have to execute it. And then I eventually just ended up taking it over and doing it on my own. Nice. So you mentioned just briefly rebalancing a portfolio. And, and I know you recently wrote a, a blog post about that on your blog. What's your thoughts there? Is it a necessity? Is it something people should do? Should they always kind of keep a strict percentage? Or what are your thoughts? Well, I, th- I think it is something that you do need to do. 
and I actually went through a bunch of data on my site comparing different uh, ways of rebalancing and how frequently to do it. And really, we need to do it a lot less frequently. We'd only need to do it probably once a year, maybe even less. And and tightly rebalancing can also worsen returns too. So the, the whole reason why we rebalance our portfolio is to try to maintain a certain level of risk in the portfolio. So yeah, most commonly, that means that, you know, over time, equities generally outperform bonds. So over time, you would generally be trimming equity to add more bonds. So if you're doing that tightly, then, well, you are going to bring down your overall average return over the years, but you're also going to decre- decrease your volatility over the years. So the idea behind rebalancing is that in investing in asset allocation in general is you're trying to balance getting the maximum investment return, which means taking more risk against taking too much risk and causing yourself to have a behavioral error where you freak out because of the volatility, or even you subtly buy and sell at the wrong times, and that behavioral gap drags down your performance. So picking the right asset allocation is about choosing that balance between the two, and then rebalancing is about keeping it close enough to that that you're going to not run into a behavioral problem. So that doesn't mean you have to be super tight with it. Again, generally, the most natural time to rebalance is when you're adding money into your portfolio during the accumulation years or when you're taking money out of your portfolio during your drawdown years. That's your opportunity to do some rebalancing. So if you're accumulating, you can add st- add money to things that are low. If you're withdrawing, then you can take a little bit extra from something that's done really well. And that's how I would rebalance rather than being too rigid about it. Yeah. So how did you, just backing up a little bit, you, you kind of have this balance, right, where you have bonds 10%, REITs 10%, Canada is 10 and 15, US 30, developing 10, emerging 15% of your of your investments. How did you come up with that? Yeah, it's, you know what, I've gone up and down it over, I've gone up and down it over the years. My basic goal is to have a well globally diversified portfolio. So one of the common mistakes that Canadians make is that we tend to have a very strong home country bias. And so we place a lot of higher weighting in Canada than than really it would represent within the global markets. And even for for example with me, I've got still got a higher weighting than what Canada's global market is. Canada's less than five percent of the world. It's probably somewhere between two and four percent of the global market, yet I've got a fifteen percent allocation. So the reason why I have that is because there are some tax advantages with the dividends uh, that are from a Canadian corporation. So I have that arranged within my professional corporation uh, to hold my Canadian eligible dividend paying equities there. And same with my rate reset preferred shares. They're held in my corporation as well because eligible dividends flow very tax efficiently through Canadian private corporations. So I can very tax efficiently uh, get revenue from that. So that's that's why I have a little bit higher than what the global markets would indicate for that. And then U.S. is the world's biggest market and uh, tends to has well has recently outperformed. So I've got a pretty big weighting in that. But there's also the rest of the world, too. So emerging markets, I have a bit more than what they would be by their global weight, because if I were to guess at where growth is going to be over the future, those developing markets probably have more opportunity that than others. But they're also going to have more volatility, too. So I have to accept that as a fact. The non-North American developed markets are pretty much dominated by Europe, which is going to, is a much more mature, slower-growing market. Uh, they pay high dividends but have less growth. 
And they're also every, everywhere in the world is affected by different factors. And when you talk about rebalancing a portfolio, I said that, you know, rebalancing between equities and bonds can actually sometimes bring your performance your investment performance down a little bit, but you're hopefully gaining on that by maintaining good behavioral performance. But if you're rebalancing between uh, assets that have a long-term return that's expected to be pretty similar, like equities, for example, or REITs and those types of things, they have a long-term return that's pretty much pretty similar, but they're also not necessarily that correlated to each other. So different world markets are affected by different factors at different times. And REITs are affected by different factors. So if you rebalance between non-correlated equities that have a similar long-term return, that actually gets into the whole buy low and sell high mechanical uh, type of advantage. So there may be a slight uh, performance investment advantage to rebalancing between those types of things. So by having all of those different assets that, are, that cover different parts of the world, cover different asset classes that aren't as strongly correlated with each other, um, my hope is to have a smoother but uh, strong return over time. And if yeah, and one it, area does bad, that's okay. The rest of my portfolio is doing fine. Sure. Yeah, and it, and it's interesting. You know, we've done probably seventy-five or so, eighty. You know, coming up on ninety millionaire interviews, and and as we talk to to different millionaires, some of them don't really know, or I don't want to say don't really know because that makes it sound like they're not intelligent, but they don't necessarily have as strict of a plan, right? And the percentages they're allocating to a certain investment or, you know, to, to bonds or REITs or a developing market, et cetera. And some do like you, right? And you're a little more rigid or have more of a plan in in where you want to go. And, and it's something we're working on to kind of allocate that data and see who's chosen what strategy and in investing. So it's just different how different people, you know, think about how they want to allocate their investments. Yeah, I think yeah, I think it's important to have something written down on paper as your plan. Now you you can be a little bit flexible around that with rebalancing. You don't want to trigger a big tax event because you're being rigid, but you need to have a plan on paper, and that becomes especially important when either the stock market's in some areas raging because you're tempted to buy more of it just because it's the cool popular thing, or if things are tanking, you got to be able to come back to your written plan and and say you know. This is my plan. I've done it in a rational way, looking at the long term. And right now I've got a short term thing that's tickling my inner beast investor. But my long term plan is what matters. Yeah. Yeah. So let's back up a little bit here now. Right. How did this all start? So you kind of mentioned that being a doctor was on your short list of, of careers and you obviously then chose to go to school and become a doctor. Did you have a lot of debt in med school? Did you kind of did you get overwhelmed at all in, in how much debt you had or maybe initially how you didn't have much money or kind of walk us through your life story a little bit? Sure. Well, I, I, as I had mentioned briefly, I grew up in a middle class family and I grew up in far the far north of Canada. So it was a bit more of an isolated area. And that that had some distinct advantages and disadvantages. And I think they're actually linked to each other. I mean, one of the distinct advantages, I think, is that people didn't really spend a lot of time thinking about work and money. They spent time with their friends and doing things. And, you know, so it helps you give you a good perspective about what's important and that you don't need to be spending a lot of money to actually be happy. You can go for a walk. You can go ride your bike, go canoeing, camping. That does that. None of those things are particularly expensive. And the other part of being up in an isolated area is that if you did want to buy something expensive, it wasn't easy. You didn't go down to the big box store and buy it. You had to look, order it, wait, find somewhere you could order it first. I mean, that would be the first step. And then you'd have to wait probably a month at least for it to come in. So there was no real impulse buying. 
uh, in that environment. So I think that was provided some good basic financial habits. And then my my dad was careful to start teaching me about investing in money while I was still a teenager. So he bought me a book, The Wealthy Barber, which was, you know, a Canadian personal finance book. And, you know, main things where you don't you don't spend money that you don't have. And when you do get paid money, you make sure you set aside some of that right away to put into your savings plan, whether that's your RRSP. Well, that's all we had back then was your RRSP or now the RRSP or TFSA and then uh, education savings for your children. So I was taught that by my, my parents and my parents also modeled that too. So we lived well beneath our means. My parents prioritized saving for both my sister and mine's education and also uh, saving for their retirement. And they both ended up actually retiring early. And they still probably live on, you know, half the money that they saved, uh, even though they have money to live on. So uh, they did that. And they've also, they also largely paid for my first undergraduate degree. And then after that, I was on my own. So between myself and my wife, we did rack up, you know, significant uh, educational debt. But uh, we are also, you know, we, we really we didn't travel anywhere when when we didn't have the income, and neither of us spent a lot of money other than for dog food for our dogs and the occasional vet bill. So we were able to keep that debt relatively controlled. And then once I got my independent license, and even before then, I did some moonlighting, doing uh, various teaching jobs. Uh, we were able to hammer down the debt pretty quickly. Let's talk a little bit about those the educational savings plans. And I know that Canada's got a little bit different acronym that they use, but largely they, in part, they, they kind of operate the same. What are the advantages of those? Obviously, you're you essentially are a product of one, and, and I'm assuming you're doing it for, for your children now. What What are some of the advantages there, and why have you kind of chosen to invest in those? Sure. I think the first thing to realize is that uh, so ours is called a registered education savings plan, which is an RESP. And the first thing to realize about an RESP is that it's not some sort of plan or product you go and buy somebody. And that's important because there are people that go and sell these group plans, as which are RESPs, but they're administered by a big group. And that comes with a bunch of fees and restrictions, which is different from doing a self-managed RESP. So a self-managed RESP is what we do. And it, it may sound intimidating to self-manage it, but it's actually extremely simple. And uh, that keeps the fees low. It also gives you total flexibility as to as to how you uh, choose to use that plan when when your kids need to access it. So that's that's the first thing is is to avoid group plans and try to have a self-administered plan. Now the next next part of that, okay, well, how does the plan work? Basically, you have to fund an RESP with after-tax money, so it has to be money that you got in hand not money from like, for example, we have a lot of our monies in our corporation. I can't take money from there and just put it into an RESP. I have to pay it to myself, pay tax on that, and then put it into the RESP. So that's how that works. And RESPs, you're allowed to put in up to $50,000 over the lifetime uh, of the plan per, per kid. And when you make contributions before the age of 18, there's also a grant that comes with it. And that grant is 20% 20% of what you put in up to a maximum of five to $600 per year, depending on your income level. And that maxes out at about $7,200 over, over the kid's lifetime. So you, you, there's not too many things where you can go put money into something and get an automatic 20% return. So that's a, probably the biggest bonus of doing an RESP. The other part of an RESP is that the income that develops on the, on the investments in there is tax sheltered. 
and it does get taxed. It's not a tax, totally tax-free thing. It's a tax deferral plan, so it gets taxed when it comes out of the RESP. But the good news there is it gets taxed in the hands of the student that's taking it out. And most students have very little income, and in Canada, you're allowed to have a certain amount of income before you really pay any tax on it. So it essentially come, it can come out tax-free at the end or very close to it. So it's a way of getting a grant, having tax deferral, and probably reducing the tax to almost nothing. But it's done with after-tax money to start off with, which is important. That's important because it, it, it how you strategize of contributing to your RESP is going to depend on your personal income level because you could if you have and whether you have a bunch of money sitting around to put it and most people don't most people just have to fund it as they go and you know if they can put their 2500 bucks in a year or maybe a little bit more they're doing pretty decently if you do have a large sum of money lump of money to put in then you may want to front load that and put a larger sum lump of money in to let it grow tax-free and then spread out the rest to get some of the grant and that depends a lot about your personal tax uh, bracket. So I've actually written a couple articles on my blog about it, and I even made an uh, online calculator tool which helps you to figure out what an optimal lump sum would be if you're lucky enough to have that money around. And uh, over the next few weeks, I'm going to be talking about RESPs in the setting of someone who's incorporated. So most physicians in Canada are incorporated, uh, which is also a tax deferral vehicle. So the balance is not quite the same in using an RESP with a, with a professional corporation. For the most part, the big benefit is the is the grant. So front-loading with large lump sums taken out of a corporation would make you pay a lot of upfront tax, which you probably wouldn't counterbalance by putting it all into the RESP. So it's better to spread out your contributions if you have a corporation. And there's a whole bunch of other wrinkles that go with that too. Once you start talking incorporation and the tax deferral and the taxes with that. There's a bunch of different variables that go together, but I've been analyzing and breaking it down, hopefully into some simple rules of thumb uh, that can hopefully help people uh, that are in that situation. Yeah, I think it's great. I appreciate you going into that. So, Uni Doc, where do you kind of go from here? Do you have aspirations to retire early? Do you have a certain net worth goal you want to hit? Where do you kind of go from here? Yeah, I mean, it's one of those... It's it's a source of a lot of discussion and thought because you know when when you do it when you we're we're very fortunate to have one the option that we can do what we want based on a, on our finances and number two there's no super pressure to do something radically different because I have a great career I work with a great group of people at the hospital that I work at and and I have a patients that I serve are excellent to work with and I can feel like I'm doing something great with that so so there's no big pressure for me to just you know pack it up and leave that. Now the advantage of having financial independence is that you can you can adjust things to actually do what you want to do. So I have been changing and scaling back my practice a little bit more recently and you know my blog is is one of the most recent side projects that I do. I also have other jobs besides my main clinical job. I'm also a department chief for our department and helped form that department from being a sort of basic service into a large department of multiple different services, which has gone really well. So, But that's coming to a close now where that seems to be running well. I've also helped to develop some different courses and a lot of teaching material in my field of specialty. But that that now seems to be running quite well. For we've been, I've been doing that for about a decade, so I'm closing that part off because there's other people that can take it to the next level. And then now I'm starting to do more of this 
writing about uh, finances and trying to be a physician who helps other physicians with their finances because I can see that as another big area of need. It hits up along with a lot of the themes of my career in general, which have been, you know, education and filling in gaps uh, where there's a need. And I think that uh, by helping physicians look better, look after their finances, it makes for better doctors because we can focus more on medicine and doing the parts of medicine that we find the most rewarding rather than being dragged down by worrying about our finances, which often hit us later on in our life. Yeah, I mean, congrats again, first of all, on, on your success. And it seems like it's kind of been fun for you to dabble in, in different areas. So just going off that last thought, why do you think, you know, why is that kind of a stereotype that doctors are bad with money? Well, <laughs> I think do- doctors are doctors are set up to be, to, and not all doctors are bad with money. I think, you know, the, we have, we do, but we do have a situation where we, we can be bad with money. And it's made by a bunch of factors. One is that it's not really covered in our training, yet we're expected to be business people when we graduate. So we have to learn about running a business without being fully taught about it. Another aspect is that because we make larger incomes, we're also, you know, a very sought after target for people that would love to sell us stuff. So we can make bad financial decisions buying things that we don't really need or that aren't the best products because people want to sell it to us. Yep, that brings us to the another area that's a weakness for us is that we have enough money that we can do these things and we can cover up all those mistakes for many, many years until some, uh, some, something's thrown into the smoothly running gears. And then, because, then you realize it's a problem. And with investing in money management, really time is your biggest, your biggest factor and you can't go back and take back that time. So we can mask a lot of problems until, they, un, until, until it's much more difficult to make them up. Yeah, I think it's a that's a great response. I think you hit it the nail on the head. All all those pieces. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, I think there's there's where there's a couple other things that I think set us up too. One is that doctors are they're smart people, and there's most things that they can go they can analyze, learn about, and do really well at. Now the thing about investing is if you know, we, so we try to go and apply that to investing. So we figure well, if I analyze all the different companies. And I use my brain and I think about it very carefully. I can outsmart the other people and I can have a higher investment performance. But we know that, you know, trying to beat Marks is, is generally a losing game. So we get sucked into that because, you know, we are otherwise smart people. And we think that our intelligence and the success can carry over into managing investments, which, you know, if that was what we 100% dedicated our time to, maybe we could. Most of us are too busy with our practices and our lives to really do that very well. So, right, right. And, and we also love a narrative. So if when, you, when doctors not only talk about diseases, they talk about the big story behind it. So we talk about the patient's story and where it is. And it's very easy to build narratives around investments that all make perfect sense, uh, but, you know, they, they don't actually work out. Yeah. Do you, have, do you currently have any debt besides your home? No. And do you remember at what age you, you first you hit your first million? Uh, I'm honestly not sure. We were we were just uh, it happened so it happened sometime during a period of time where we were just busy. I was busy trying to get my career established, and we had two small children at home, which occupied the rest of the time. So, you know, we would put the money in and invest it, and didn't really pay a lot of attention looking at it, yeah. other than uh, topping up our different accounts. Well, hey, I just want to end with some some rapid fire questions here, and and then go into some advice. So, uh, what's the most expensive jeans or pair of pants you've ever purchased? 
Well, probably about 60 bucks. Okay. Most expensive shoes? Uh, shoes, probably about 250 I spent a lot of time on my feet. Okay. Most expensive car? My most expensive daily driver was was a pickup truck, and it was about uh, 40000 And my most expensive vehicle was a motorhome. A few hundred thousand dollars, but we spent oh, wow. a little time in it. Do you, do you still have that? <laughs> oh, yeah. And you're happy you do? Oh, yeah. We love it. Motorhome is a very terrible financial investment, but it's been a great investment <laughs> for our family in terms of uh, time together. So that probably answers this next question is what item or items or experiences are we're spending more money on to you? Yeah, it's time, it's time with your family. You're not, you're not going to get that back. Uh, so that's worth spending your money on. And then learning to do new things is another thing we're spending on, money on. So I spend a fair bit of money on various hobbies and, and learning new things. And so does the rest of my family. If we look at look at where we spend money on sort of non-elective uh, things, that's where we spend it. I think that's a neat perspective, a neat perspective in, in learning new things. You know, I don't think that's been mentioned before and, and kind of helps push us and, and learn new skills. Yeah, if you stay if you stagnate, then it's, it gets pretty boring. And if you want if you, you want to use your, you want to use your money to buy it to basically help promote happiness for yourself. And if, if you want to look at how you can do that, you can do that with your relationships so the most tight relationships generally your family with self-improvement and feeling like you're contributing something by learning new things. And then the third thing is, is actually just giving. Uh, give, people get a disproportionate amount of joy from giving money or time to a cause than just buying themselves something. So we also have giving as part of our regular budget and you want it to be a sort of part of your financial habit. That's good. Good for you guys. Do you remember your high school and college GPA? Uh, high school, I was in the high 80s, I think, for high school. And then uh, in university, my GPA was 3.88. I, I know that because I obsessed over it. I remember it was 3.89. It was close to four. Any favorite books or websites or tools that you've learned from that have been beneficial in teaching you? I've got them scattered around my desk here in various states. <laughs> so uh, How to Think About Money by Jonathan Clements is probably one of the best personal finance books that I've read in terms of thinking about money and and not just having it be having it be something that actually works for you rather than you work for it. So I think that that's been a good one. And in terms of physician specific books, uh, the White Coat Investor just came out with his most recent book, which is a financial boot camp book, which is a great personal finance book for doctors. It's written for the for the US context, but a lot of the main principles apply Canadians in general. We do have a number of differences, but that's a good book. And Corey Fawcett's also written a few books about uh, finances for physicians. Again, it's a, it's they're more of the American context. Um, but the part I like about his books is it's all, it, it reminds me of sitting in, in the doctor's lounge or operating on someone and having your older colleague impart their wisdom upon you. And it's, it's interesting because it has kind of that tone where, you know, someone's been around for a while and they, you know, instead of talking around about all the popular topics and the, the usual way of saying things, they tell you what's, what's BS and what's for real. So tell us a little bit about your blog. It's it's Looney Doctor and maybe how you came up with the name and what people can expect to find there. Yeah, so I came up with the name just because uh, loonies are $1 coins, so it is about money. And I'm, I'm writing about it from the perspective of a, of a physician. And you know, my target audience is high-income professionals in general. Uh, you know, physicians are the ones that I can most easily talk about, but I think we all fail, face a lot of the same issues. 
because we're we have different issues with making more money and taxes and how to spend it wisely and how to not fall into some of the traps that you can fall into. So so I've aimed at that that audience and Looney because I'm also a little bit you know different. I tend to march to my own drum and do things my own way and think uh, differently. And sometimes that could be a little bit crazy, but that's part of what's fun. Awesome. Well, that's the Looney Doctor. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. No problem. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.